0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. And with that, uh, as we have our sermon today, to, because today is the fourth Sunday of the month, another thing we do is we, we like to have the Lord's Supper or communion once a month if we can. The Bible doesn't say to have it once a month. Uh, the closest we know of, as far as the frequency in the Bible, is Often is the word that is used, have it often, celebrate it often. The early church celebrated it often, so we want to celebrate it often. So that's the privilege we have today is communion. Usually we have a regular sermon and then communion at the end. And So we don't have many opportunities actually to take some time, pause, and think about communion in depth from a biblical point of view. What is communion? Why do we do it? What's its significance? What was the origin of it? When did it start? Where does it come from? How does it apply and is it relevant to Christians today? And more and more that becomes a shrouded reality in question, even in the evangelical world, as I think of Christians I've interacted with churches that I've been to, I visited, and I remember visiting a church, evangelical church, and at the end uh, it was a communion Sunday, but nobody knew about it except people that were there because they didn't announce it and People just knew that if you wanted to have communion after the service, you go over in the corner somewhere with somebody and they give it to you there. So it wasn't highlighted as part of the corporate worship in the service. It was just kind of a period at the end of a sentence. Uh, That was not Jesus' intent. It's a very important ordinance that he wants his church to be celebrating continually. So today we have the privilege to go through, I think, one of the key chapters in the Bible that really gives us the foundation and the origin of fully understanding the significance of of communion, so we have the privilege to do that. So I'd invite you to open up your Bible to Exodus chapter 12. If you have uh, the outline on your bulletin today, the title of the sermon is The Passover, is all I call it, the Passover. Exodus chapter 12, we'll be looking at Exodus chapter 12, and then we will conclude after we get through Exodus chapter 12. We'll go on to point number five, which is the New Testament significance and fulfillment of the Passover, and then after that, we'll take communion together. So today we won't have children's church, we'll all be privileged to stay together here. So let's go ahead and look at Exodus chapter 12, and we're just going to kind of survey it section by section, go through it rather quickly, and just make some significant highlights and points along the way. Again, this is preparing our hearts for communion and the meaning of communion. We need to do things in keeping with truth when we practice them so that it doesn't just become an empty ritual with no meaning we want to give it biblical significance so that's why we're going over this and we have a lot of different people here with different backgrounds some of you grew up unchurched agnostic slash atheist i know for a fact that's true some of you grew up maybe in a more traditional denomination that was liturgical whether it was a lutheran church or a presbyterian church or an episcopalian church and that kind of a thing and they had communion or whatever they called it the eucharist and they had their theology and practice and the way they did that others of you like me have a catholic background roman catholic it was called the eucharist or the mass is what that's what we called communion the eucharist and it was a a formal event with very significant meaning attached to it very different than what i believe today or what's taught in the bible Uh, Or maybe you have a background in Mormonism or those kind of things. Mormons practice communion, celebrate it. They give attach different meaning to it. Even the way it is practiced is very different. So we have all these varied backgrounds with respect to communion. We can't just assume everybody understands and knows the full significance of communion, why we take it, how we're supposed to practice it. So we have that privilege today. And when Jesus inaugurated the first communion... Which was literally just before his death. He had his twelve apostles. We call it the Last Supper. The Last Supper was the first communion. And then Jesus dismissed Judas. And then Jesus inaugurated and celebrated the first communion with his eleven faithful apostles. Celebrated. We're going to see that. And then he told them to continue to do this until his return. The question is, well, Why did Jesus have the Last Supper and the First Communion anyway? Where did that come from? Jesus was Jewish. He was a Jewish rabbi. He was raised in the synagogue. He taught in the synagogue. He was a master of the Old Testament. He believed that the Old Testament was the very word of God. And the Passover was commanded in the Old Testament. And so Jesus grew up celebrating, practicing the Passover meal. And the last Passover that he ever had. Eight was during the week of his life and gave new significance and meaning to it. So that's what we're going to see today. It's absolutely amazing. So let's go ahead and look at uh, the Passover as it was given by God historically, Exodus chapter 12. And we'll just go through these points. Uh, The heading there, the Passover meal was a celebration. I say celebration because if you have a New American Standard Bible, as we're reading through, the word celebration will come up. Hebrew word, verse 47. Some, some say practice or observe, but some English translations say celebrate. So in many ways, the Passover for the Jews, it was a celebration. Interesting in the New Testament, when the New Testament talks about communion, it, it calls it a celebration from the word Eucharisto to be thankful. To, it's a time of thanksgiving to God. So one of the blessings and privileges we have as Christians today is to celebrate the Lord's table, to celebrate communion by giving thanks first and foremost to God and what he's done on our behalf. So the Passover meal was a celebration of God's greatest act of deliverance in the Old Testament. It was a picture of Christ's death on the cross. So if I were to ask you, depending upon no matter where your background is in terms of Bible knowledge, the Old Testament, 39 books, it's way bigger than the New Testament. And if I were to ask you, what is the greatest act of salvation and deliverance that God accomplished in the Old Testament? Your answer should be it was the Exodus. That was the greatest act of salvation or deliverance that God accomplished for His people. The greatest saving act that God performed in the Old Testament was the Exodus, saving two million plus Israelites or Jews out of slavery from Egypt and then bringing them into the promised land. The Bible, the Old Testament calls that an act of salvation. Even though it was physical, it wasn't a personal individual salvation. It was a literal act of deliverance on behalf of God, literally delivering that nation out of slavery after 400 years. Many times in the Old Testament, the word salvation is used literally, not spiritually and individually, but corporately and literally. God rescued somebody from death. So the greatest act of salvation and deliverance by God, by Yahweh in the Old Testament was the exodus, rescuing them out of slavery, redeeming them, purchasing them out of the ownership of a slave owner. And so in Passover, that's what the Jews were celebrating. They were celebrating that their God, their saving God, their gracious, merciful God, their powerful God, delivered them and saved them out of slavery from the Egyptians and brought them into the promised land. That's primarily what was in the mind of a Jew as he celebrated Passover. It it included many other things as well, but that was one of the main things. The greatest act of salvation on the part of God in the Old Testament was rescuing his people out of slavery from Egypt. In the New Testament, what is the greatest act of God? It is Jesus Christ saving his people from their sins by his death and resurrection. And that's built upon the foundation of God's saving act of what he did for the Jews in the Old Testament. God is a saving God. So that's the beautiful picture that we see in Passover. So let's go ahead and look at the Passover, which really is the foundation of communion and why Christians take it today. As we go through, hopefully you can see all these amazing, just rich, obvious allusions and pictures and things pointing to Jesus Christ, the Savior. So let's look at uh, Exodus chapter 12. Just by way of setting the context, Je- Exodus chapter 12 happens in about 14, 1440 B.C. in the days of Moses. Moses has been commissioned by God. He's an old man. He's 80 years old, prophet of God now. And he was called by God to go talk to the Jewish people, the Israelites, and say, I am your prophet. I am the mouthpiece of God. I'm here to set you free. And he was also called to confront pharaoh who was holding them in slavery moses did that he confronted pharaoh face to face repeatedly we know and pharaoh kept saying no 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 he was evil he had a hardened heart and so god poured down these nine literal miraculous plagues on egypt to punish pharaoh and to harden his to soften his heart and eventually to deliver the israelites so god had done nine miraculous signs already Confronting Pharaoh, and Pharaoh refused to let the two million Jews go from slavery. So finally, in Exodus chapter 12, God tells Moses, okay, Moses and Aaron, one more time, I'm doing one more plague. I'm doing one more miracle on your behalf to confront Pharaoh. And this time, he will let you go. Not only will he let you go, he will drive you out of the country, says God to Moses in Exodus chapter 11. And then he tells Moses what it is. Here's the last plague. The the avenger is going to come at midnight, the avenger of God, and will go over every house in Egypt. And if there is not blood on the front of the house, then the avenging angel, which is God himself, will kill the firstborn in every single home. If there is blood on the front of the house, the avenging angel or God himself will pass over that house and will not kill anybody. Although somebody in that house died, God will pass over it. Someone will die A substitute will die in that house. A lamb will die in that house. So on this night, there will be a death in every single home, whether they believed or not. A death in every single home. Either the firstborn of those who refuse to believe or an innocent substitutionary lamb that did nothing wrong, that will be slaughtered on behalf of sinful people. And then God said, then you will be delivered. Pharaoh will let your people go as a result. So that was the setup for Exodus chapter 12. So let's go ahead and look at it and see if God is true to his word. Point number one regarding the Passover was the preparation of the Passover, and that's verses 1 through 14. Now the Lord Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, they are slaves. They've been slaves of Egypt for 400 plus years. God gave Abraham a prophecy in Genesis 15, 400 years before this event, 400 years before this event, God told Abraham, in the future, your descendants will be slaves in a faraway country. They'll be there for 400 years, and then I will set them free. Genesis 15. It's amazing. God goes on with uh, Moses and Aaron. He says, this month, this month, what month was this? Well, this was Abib, A-B-I-B in the Hebrew. This month, Abib. For us, it's about April when we have Easter. After the ag- exile, they changed it to Nisan, which was the Babylonian name. But in this month, Moses, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. So this a, a new thing was happening. God was creating a new nation, and with that God was giving them a new identity, and he's even going to give them a new calendar by which to live and operate and have their identity. From now you're not operating according to the Egyptian calendar anymore, which was pagan and meaningless. From now on, you have a new calendar. It's my calendar. It's God's calendar. It's a spiritual calendar, and you will abide by it, and it has significance, and it has meaning, and from now on, this will be the first month. Your your religious year, your spiritual year will begin with this month. So their calendar year began with a spiritual festival, which would be called Passover. So this month shall be beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Here's what you are to do, Moses and Aaron. Speak to all the congregation of Israel. That's a challenge. Go to two million Israelites who are slaves. Get an audience with them, if Pharaoh will let you. And communicate this truth to two million people who are slaves. On the 10th of this month, on the 10th of Abib, on the 10th of Nisan, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. So that would be a challenge. Remember, they're slaves. They don't have full rights and privileges. But God would make sure that this happens. And so they were in existence in the land of Egypt by families, by homes. They had many people living in individual homes, large families. And he said each family needs to secure a lamb on the the 10th of the month of Nisan. Verse four, now, if the household is too small for lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. So command number one, we're to recognize this month is the new month. This is the month of God's people. This is the religious and spiritual month where we worship Yahweh, true God as a nation, Where I'm making you and I'm fulfilling that promise. When I told Abraham in 2000 BC, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And the world will be blessed through you. But I'm going to make you a great nation. And that was just Abraham, one guy. And in order to have a nation, Abraham needed descendants. And God fulfilled that by bringing them to Egypt, where they went from just 70 people to 2 million people in 400 years. Well, if you're a nation, God promised to make Abraham a nation. Not only do you need people for a nation, you need a land. And that's what God is doing. I'm taking you out of Egypt into your own land, into the promised land. You can't have a nation without a land that's specific and distinct and belongs to that people. And God will fulfill that in Exodus and books after that, Joshua. And then also to have a nation, not only do you need people and descendants and you need land, you also need laws. You can't have a nation without laws that unites the people. And that's what Moses was for. He was the great law giver. And so you see God fulfilling all these promises from Genesis, from the time of promise to Abraham to the time of Moses and Exodus as he's preparing his people, making them a nation. And the ultimate fulfillment from all of that was out of this blessed nation would be would come one, a Jew, a descendant of Eve, a descendant of the seed who would crush Satan. He would come through the loins of Abraham. He would come through the loins of Jacob and the 12 tribes and through Moses, through the nation of Israel. And he'd be born a savior of the world. That's what all of this is leading up to. Fulfilling the promise God made to Abraham that the world will be blessed through you. What that meant was, Jesus, the Messiah. So this is what Moses is to tell his people. Get a lamb, bring it to your house. And at the end of verse four, then to divide the lamb. Verse five, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old, unblemished. It couldn't it had to be without defect. It was a young lamb, a baby lamb. It could be from the lambs or the goats, a baby. It had to be less than a year unused, pristine, unblemished. The New Testament authors and the apostles pick up on this, that Jesus is the lamb of God was unblemished, unblemished lamb. He had no defect. And what that meant was Jesus had no sin. He was unlike any other human ever born. He is qualified to be God's sacrificial lamb because he is without blemish. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old, You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. This is amazing. You select a lamb on the 10th of Nisan. You welcome it. You own it into your home. The idea is that from those five days, the 10th, the 11th, the 12th, and the 13th, until the 14th day when you slaughter the lamb, you have five days to identify with that lamb, to recognize the lamb, to look for defects in the lamb, to examine the lamb. To make sure that it is qualified. And then it would become the substitute of the people. When did Jesus die? The Gospels say that Jesus died on the Passover. That's a miracle. Jesus died on the Passover. Read the Gospel of John. Three and a half years before Jesus died, Jesus cleansed the temple, then he did a miracle on the Sabbath, and it says the Jews tried to kill him. Repeatedly that happened. The Jewish leaders tried to kill Jesus prematurely, and many times they tried to kill him when it wasn't the Passover, which would undermine all of God's prophecies and types of the coming. Messiah. So Jesus, the lamb, had to die on Passover. And you see that in the Gospels. Jesus is in charge of his life. Jesus is in charge of his death. I must die. I am the Savior. I'm the Lamb of God. I must die on the Passover. No, you're not going to kill me today. You're not going to kill me this month. You're not going to kill me this year. He knew he had to die on the Passover. That's why he says in John chapter 10, 17 and 18, no man takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down and I willingly take it up again. Because Jesus knew that he was the Lamb of God. He must die at a specific appointed time on the 14th of Nisan as commanded by God to Moses. The lamb must be sacrificed on the 14th. Jesus died on the 14th. It's kind of interesting in verse 3 where it said, select the lamb on the 10th of the month. Choose the lamb. But what happened on the 10th of the month when Jesus died on the 14th? According to the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, the triumphal entry was on Monday the 10th. Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Jesus came to his own. Jesus was welcomed by his people as king and savior on the 10th of Nisan. Coincidence? I don't think so. In direct fulfillment of these pictures and allusions and prophecies that a greater sacrifice is yet to come without sin. And then God goes on and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly, the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Twilight means between the evenings between the evenings, before midnight. Josephus wrote much about Passovers. He lived at that time, the time of Christ. He observed the temple. He observed the Jews. He knew them well. He saw the practices going on at the temple. And repeatedly, Josephus lets us know that the sacrificial Paschal Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the temple on the 14th of Nisan, beginning at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, from 3 to 5, between the twilight Is when they were killing the lambs. But they started slaughtering lambs at three o'clock in the afternoon. Interestingly, Matthew 27 says that Jesus died and gave up his spirit at three o'clock in the afternoon, which is exactly when they began slaughtering paschal lambs. And John is very, Matthew and John are very specific about the time of all these events. Between the twilights, you are to kill it. So, You pick out a cute lamb, you bring it into your home, the children get used to it, they think it's a pet, and then at some point you have to slaughter that lamb, kill the lamb. How would they do that? With a knife, and they would slit the throat. They had to save the blood, drain the blood. This just is a grisly, gruesome act. We can't even think of doing something like this today in our homes. Save the blood, take the animal, prepare it as a sacrifice. It's all symbolic of the coming Christ who would die. His his blood would be shed on our behalf. Verse 7, moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost and on the lintel of the houses out front. And they would do it with a hyssop branch like a paintbrush. They would use like a shrub or a weed and put the blood on the outside so that your neighbors could see it, the Egyptians could see it. It was a sign. It was an indication. It was gruesome. Blood. Blood speaks of death. Sacrifice. Substitution. And that's what they were commanded to do. Verse 8, and they shall eat the flesh of the passover lamb that's why jesus said this is my body eat of it partake of it and he was speaking spiritually not literally i am the one that gives you life i am the sacrificial lamb take some of the blood uh and they shall eat the flesh the same night roasted with fire and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs and so that was to be the practice from that point on celebrate the passover once a year with your families slaughtering lambs with unleavened bread which was symbolic for being ready and ready to go. Also having no leaven, which was getting rid of the influence of sin in your life and also bitter herbs, reminding you of the bitterness of slavery, reminding you where you came from, reminding you where God saved you from. So Passover was to be a reminder, it was a memorial of the great saving act of God, which is also what communion is for us. It's a memorial to remind us of the great saving act of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very similar. Verse 10, and you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Nothing left over. Verse 11, and now you shall eat it in this manner. With your loins girded, meaning pull up your robes like you're ready to run. Your sandals on your feet, staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. So the idea is they're slaves. They're in their homes. They got their shoes on, which means they're ready to leave the house, meaning God is going to let them know at a moment's notice, you need to be ready to leave your house and go where I tell you to go. And that's exactly what happened, because they celebrated the first Passover on the 14th of Nisan. And then on the 15th of Nisan, Pharaoh told them, get out of here. And they did. And the Israelites began the Exodus on the 15th, the next day. So they were ready to go. So God was preparing them for salvation, deliverance. The end of verse eleven. Now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And that's where we get that word, the Passover. Passover means the very that very thing. To pass over, to skip over, to bypass. Verse 12. For look at this is amazing. This is God talking. I will go through the land of Egypt. God claims He's the one that will go through the land. I will go through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. So that's that's God. God is the one who's going to go through as an avenging angel. God is called the avenging the destroyer in verse 23, the destroyer. That's God. God said, I am the one who's going to go through the night. I am the one who is going to kill the firstborn. I am going to strike them down. This is a this offends the sensibilities of human, humanity, the idea that God, who is a God of love, would kill anybody, would slaughter anybody. In this way, that's why people look at the Old Testament who don't understand it and say, yeah, the God of the Old Testament is a God of anger, wrath, a lack of love. But yeah, we like the New Testament. Love, love, love. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. They, they have a distorted view of God. God doesn't change. He's always been the same. He's always been a holy God, a perfect God, God of love and grace and mercy and also his holiness, which is manifest through his wrath and his anger. He hates sin. He always has. He must punish sin. We need to have a balanced view of God. This is also true of Jesus. Jesus is that way. In, we have a portrait of Jesus Christ in the Passover. What is Jesus like? He is the lamb. He's the lamb of God. He's the substitute for sinners because God loves sinners, wants to forgive sinners and provide for them. So Jesus is the lamb in Exodus 12, and Jesus is also the destroyer in Exodus 12. He is both. He is the judge. John chapter five, Jesus said the father's entrusted all judgment to the son. So he's the destroyer and the lamb. He's the one who strikes down and the one who forgives sin and gives grace. And it all comes down to what do you believe about him? Do you believe him or not? Any Egyptian that believed the warning of what was coming, all they had to do was believe, repent Obey and submit to Moses's word and they would be forgiven. They would be saved. They would be spared. How do we know that? Because that's exactly what happened. Some of the Egyptians around did that very thing and got to go with the Israelites when they were released and they were not killed. So it's the grace and the wrath of God. And God promised to strike down the firstborn in the land, not just of human beings, but both of man and beast. And this was a this was actually a strike against the false gods of Israel. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Their pagan religion, they had a God for everything. A God of fertility, the God of the firstborn, the God of their crops, the God of their animals, the God of the weather, the God of sun. This was a judgment against all of it. Verse 13, and the blood shall be a sign for you. The blood is a symbol. On the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God literally comes out in the form of an angel called the destroying angel. At midnight, we know this. And as he's going over the land of every house that has blood on it, he passes over. If there's blood covering you, you won't be judged for your sin. Passed over, your life was spared. That's the picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on behalf of sinners. If you believe in his death on your behalf, you're covered in the blood, literally. And God's wrath doesn't abide on you. God's wrath doesn't come to you. All of your sins are forgiven. That is the picture. That's exactly what God is laying out here. Are you covered by the blood, the blood of Jesus, the blood of the lamb? So God passes over every house that has blood on it. A substitute died on their behalf. An innocent substitute died on their behalf. An innocent substitute perfect substitute died on their behalf. And that satisfied God's anger. And they believed it by faith. They did. So the blood was a sign. What is the blood a sign of it? What did it symbolize? It actually symbolized their faith. Moses said, if you put blood on the front door, which probably sounded absolutely, utterly ridiculous in their day. Are you kidding me? I have young children. What will my neighbors think? The fact that they did this is the fact they put their faith into action. This is true saving faith. They believed God at his word. That's what God saw. He didn't see works righteousness. He saw that they had faith and they trusted him at his word. Same is true today. Christians need to act on their faith. Then verse 14, now this day will be in a memorial. In other words, it's something you'll never forget. We need to remember this always. We need to practice this annually and teach your children why we do what we do. And this will inform their biblical worldview as parents are responsible for teaching their children the meaning of life and history and God and Christ and death and sin. And we need visible, tangible reminders for that. And that's what God gave as a gift to the Israelites. And God has given us communion as a church for the same thing. It's a memorial. That's what that means to you. And you shall celebrate it as a fee and it is celebration. Thanking God for being the deliverer. Thank you, God deliverance and you shall celebrate it as a feast of the lord throughout your generations you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance continually forevermore we still celebrate it today in the form of communion so that's the preparation then we skip verses 15 to 20 because that's talking about uh, a different festival and he picks up uh, verse 21 so let's go ahead and look at it well that's the preparation for the passover what about what is the purpose of the passover 21, then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, go take for yourselves lambs, according to your families, and slay the Passover lamb. So the fathers were to do this. Kill the lamb, pour out the blood. Cook it. Verse 22, and you shall take a a bunch of hyssop, that's uh, plants, and dip it in the blood, which is in the basin, and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through. There it is. The Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. God will bring his wrath on unbelievers. That's the idea. Those who do not believe. And when the Lord sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over in the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. God was coming in the form of the destroyer. It could have been the angel of the Lord, a theophany, we call it. Verse 24, and you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. And it will come about when you enter the land. So here's it gets to the purpose. Why are we doing this, God? Well, when you come into the promised land, which the Lord will give you, as he promised, that you shall observe this Passover and it will come about. Your children will say to you, what do children do? They ask questions. They're professionals at it. And that's what's going to happen here. You're doing the Passover. and The children are saying, Mom and Dad, what what does this right mean? Why are we doing this? Why are we killing this lamb? I, I like this lamb. I gave it a name. Why are we doing this? And then the parents were supposed to explain the meaning and significance of the Passover. Verse 27, that you shall say it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel. So it is a sacrifice. God instituted sacrificial substitutionary atonement with Adam and Eve when he slaughtered animals to make clothes for them to cover their sin he's a forgiving god and he killed a substitute on their behalf and ever since adam and eve god has been demanding this practice of his people that animals should be sacrificed blood needs to be shed for the forgiveness of sin we see that with abraham when god abraham was making all kinds of altars and sacrifices from the time that god called him and then the ultimate sacrifice god told him in genesis 22 when god told Abraham, take your son, your only son, which was Isaac. Isaac was not his only son, by the way. And three times in Genesis 22, God told Abraham, take your son, your only son. Literally what it means. Take your son, your beloved son. Take your son, the son of promise. Take your son, the only one who can fulfill the promises I made to you. Three times he calls Isaac, your only son. Take your son, your only son, and take him on that mountain. Kill him, sacrifice him. And Isaac is about 16 at the time. And Abraham takes Isaac up the hill. Abraham prepared his son. They have wood. They're going to make a fire. They have a knife. And Abraham and Isaac are going up the hill to the sacrifice. And the teenage son asked a good question and asked his dad and looked around wait, we're going up to sacrifice and kill something. And he asked his dad, Father, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? One of the most significant and poignant questions in all of human history. Where's the lamb? Where's the sufficient substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of us? Where is the lamb? 1900 years later, John the Baptist came along. When Jesus began his ministry and the first thing out of his mouth was behold. The lamb of God, where is the lamb? It's Jesus Christ. He's the lamb of God. John chapter one, verse twenty nine. John the Baptist answered that question. Where is the lamb? There is the lamb. His name is Jesus. The Lord will pass over. The destroyer will pass over. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance. You'll tell your children. You'll explain the meaning. God is a holy God. He must punish sin. But God is a loving God. And he's willing to kill a sacrifice, an innocent sacrifice on behalf of you if you just believe. And the greatest sacrifice of all is yet to come. The greatest Passover of all. And you'll say to your children, it's a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians. But he spared our homes. He spared us. If you become a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you know what happens? You get spared. I got spared. Spared of what? Spared of judgment that we deserve because of our sin. If you're a Christian today, you've been spared by God. That's something to celebrate. And the people bowed low and worshiped. You know what? That was a sign of thanksgiving. Praise God. Thank you, Lord, the deliverer. Verse 28, then the sons of Israel went and did. So they obeyed just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. That was the purpose. The purpose was where God gave meaning to what the Passover was, passing over and sparing them of their sin because he killed a substitute in their place. Well, the practice, did they do it? Yes, they did. That's number three. 29 to 39. Now it came about, verse 29, at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt with the avenging angel, God Himself. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, no one would be spared, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive or slave, there's no partiality with God, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Pharaoh rose in the night. Why? From all the screaming. And the death of his own son. He and all of his servants and all Egyptians. And listen to this phrase. And there was a great cry in Egypt. Cry of death. Slaughter. For there was no home. Where there was not someone dead. Verse 31. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night. And said rise up. Get out from among the people. Both you and the sons of Israel. And go worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds. As you have said and go and And bless me also. Pharaoh was schizophrenic. And the Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. Get out of here, you Israelites. The Egyptians were in a panic and they sent the Israelites. Verse 35. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So the Israelites took all the silver and gold from the Egyptians and the Egyptians gave it to them gladly and willingly because they were just concerned about the death of their beloved family members. And they, they began immediately to bury their dead while they let the Israelites go free. This was the grace of God because it was through those plundering implements that God would help them survive in the wilderness. The grace of God. Now, verse 37, now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot. That means there's about 2 million Israelites, 2 million, aside from children, women, children, the elderly, all their animals. Verse 38, and not only the Israelites, but also a mixed multitude. Who were they? Well, they were probably non-Israelites, non-Jews, scared Egyptians who were willing to do the blood sacrifice and and go with the Israelites that they might be saved. This mixed multitude also went up with them along with the flocks and the herds, a very large number of livestock. And they baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread. They ate it in a hurry, for it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. So they followed through and practiced exactly what God asked them to do. By the way, this mixed multitude in verse 38, you see them later in the book of Numbers when there's a, a called a rabble. The the negative, grumbling, small group of people that poisoned the minds of everyone else to turn against Moses, you know where it began? With the mixed multitude, says the book of Numbers. They were 11, a bad influence. And then let's go ahead and look at the picture. What is this all picture? What is it a symbol of? Well, something greater than this historical event. 40 to 51. Verse 40, now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. That's how long they were slaves. And it came about at the end of 430 years to the very day that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So this is about 1446 B.C. to the day. It is a night to be observed for the Lord for having brought them out of the land of Egypt. This night is for the Lord to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. What does that mean? Basically, no unbeliever. Someone who's not a part of the covenant community is not to celebrate. And so we would say that today when we have communion. Anybody who's a Christian here this day is welcome to participate in communion when we pass the elements around. If you're not a Christian, just let it pass. And that's for your good, actually. Because uh the Bible says through the Apostle Paul, that if you're not a Christian and you take communion, you bring judgment upon yourself and you don't want that kind of a judgment. So it's for the believing community only and so also was true of the Passover. But God in his grace allowed them to be converted if they were foreigners and not Jews and they could enter into the community through the proper means. Verse 44, but every man's slave purchased with money after you have circumcised him then he may eat of it. He joins the community through circumcision. He adopts the true faith of Yahweh. A sojourner or a hired servant shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bones of the lamb. So they cooked the lamb, but they weren't supposed to break any bones of the lamb, the sacrificial lamb. And the gospel writers pick up on this and say, Jesus, who died on the cross, the soldiers went up to break his legs, But they didn't because he was already dead. And so thus fulfilled the scriptures that not a bone of the lamb would be broken. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Verse 48, but if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near to celebrate it. And he shall be like a native of the land, but no circumcised person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. And then all the sons of Israel did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And it came about on the same day that the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. And they celebrated Passover. And then God, the next day, God delivered them from slavery. The parallel is obvious. Jesus Christ celebrated the Last Supper and his first communion with his 11 apostles and the next day actually that very night he delivered his people from sin he delivered his people from slavery just like they did at passover god is the saving god and anytime god saves god always brings judgment judgment and saving they're two sides of the same coin because Jesus' death was an act of judgment by god of his hatred for sin and at the same time It was the greatest act of love by God as he killed a substitute on behalf of sinners that they might be forgiven. The greatest reality in the history of the world. Let's go on to number five, the passion, the passion. What's the passion? Well, that word came to mean the events all related to the death of Christ. That's what the passion means, the death of Christ, the death. Of the ultimate lamb of God, go to second, go to first Corinthians chapter five. And I'm going to ask our ushers who are going to distribute communion to go ahead and uh, get the elements and get those in place. And um, do we have a piano player to uh, be ready? to, Or if we don't, that's fine. Um, oh, Brian, thank you. To meditate in our own hearts. As we now have the opportunity to prepare our hearts for communion. Look at Second Corinthians chapter 5. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul, talking to a Christian community, dealing with sin in their midst, telling them what the solution is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. They're Christians. They believe in the gospel, and yet look at verse 7. He says, your boasting is not good. So they're being sinful like we are. We struggle with sin. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Don't you remember the Passover story I told you about where you weren't supposed to have any leaven because leaven is a negative influence? As the communion comes around, just hold on to that and we'll uh, celebrate and eat it together in just a minute. Then in verse 7 in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul gives this exhortation, clean out the old leaven, deal with your sin. So that's what we do at communion. Before we take the elements, we deal with our sin. We know we know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sin, so he actually dealt with our sin. But we still continue to battle with sin. We have sin living in us. So we need to confess to the Father, Father, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my sin this morning as I sinned against a family member coming to church or this last week, a colleague at work, or maybe I had wrong thoughts throughout the week, whatever it was. These are the things we need to do maintenance with. That's what Paul means when he says, clean out the old leaven at the time of communion. As we think about Christ, who is our Passover, so he says, "Clean out the old leaven in order that you may be a new lump, you may be purified or forgiven, cleansed once again, in other words, in white, right relationship with Jesus Christ, your Savior, just as you are in fact unleavened you're you're totally forgiven of all your sin legally by virtue of Jesus' death on your behalf. for after all, verse seven, for Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. So there the Apostle Paul gives us the meaning of Passover, also of communion, and also the meaning of Jesus' death. When Jesus died on the cross, he was punished by the Father. The Father poured out his full fury of wrath on Jesus as Jesus was a substitute for all the sin of the world. And anyone who come, comes along and understands what Jesus did believes that he died as their substitute, admits that they are a sinner, and knows that God is the only way that they can have their sins forgiven, cries out to the Lord Jesus, asks Him to be your Savior and your Lord, and that's how Jesus saves you. That's how God saves you and me and forgives us of our sin. And once we're forgiven of sin and become Christians, all of our sin is forgiven, past, present, and future, from a legal point of view, meaning God looks down from heaven, and if you're a Christian, He sees you as white as snow. He sees you as pristine and pure as that unblemished lamb he sees you get this as beautiful as christ himself is because we are clothed and wrapped in the very identity and the glory of jesus christ our blessed savior that's from a legal point of view but it's a real point of view all of our sins are forgiven but the practical reality is we still battle with sin day to day and that's what paul's saying deal with your sin admit it fess up to it ask god for help ask for forgiveness for other people you need to but do maintenance daily Of your sin, and the time where we think about maintenance of our sin is at communion, as we're reminded of the meaning of the death of Christ. And so that's going to be our privilege. So if you're a Christian, you're in the family of God, you are invited, but just before we take of the elements, to thank the Lord Jesus Christ for his sacrifice, to thank him for dying on behalf of sin, for actually thanking him for giving us total forgiveness of sin, and also for asking him for help in our ongoing battle with sin. It's a time to celebrate, Christian. so let's do this now as we have a little music. Just meditate in your own heart for a minute or two, talking to your Savior, the Lord Jesus. Well, the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed just before his death with his 11 faithful apostles, literally transformed the feast of the Passover for the Old Testament saints into a new reality and a new celebration, communion, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table for his church, for fellow believers and it was to be a perpetual celebration not just once a year but but often as we meet and it was a memorial which means it's a reminder of two things it's a reminder of jesus's death on our behalf as sinners but also a reminder that he is coming again he is our hope from day to day and then the lord jesus said to his disciples this is my body this is my blood eat and drink in my name let's do that together well as we close our worship we have the privilege of singing just a beautiful song reminding us of jesus as the lamb of god and before we do that i want to close us in prayer if you could bow with me and we'll thank the father for our time this morning father we do thank you for this day thank you for the truth of your word these reminders about passover true history that gives significance to us today of communion, the Lord's Supper. Thank you for the reminder that you are a holy God, you must punish sin, and you're also a gracious God and willing to forgive sinners, and that you provide the perfect substitute on our behalf, that we might have total forgiveness of sin and a right relationship with you. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, the great High Priest, the very one who is our Passover today. We give you all the glory for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Doctor McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at GBFSV.org or call us at six five zero six three zero 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 nine.